0: Welcome to the Central Seminary Podcast. Thanks for joining us today as we discuss biblical and theological issues relating to life and ministry. This podcast is a ministry of Central Baptist Theological Seminary in Plymouth, Minnesota. To learn more about Central Seminary, visit our website at www.centralseminary.edu. My name is Jared, and I'll be your host. Well, good afternoon, and welcome back to another episode on the Central Seminary Podcast. I haven't been great at following these uh, landmarks, but this is our 40th episode, so episode number 40, so we've been going for, I think, a year and three months, something like that, so you can celebrate by sharing and liking this episode, I suppose. Uh, We're back with Preston Mays. Welcome back, Preston.
1: Ah, thank you. Glad to be here again.
0: So we are finishing up our uh, our walk through some themes in the book of Job. Mm-hmm. And I, I wanted to ask, I think we asked you some of your favorite commentaries mm-hmm. on the book of Job. I, I wanted to ask the reverse. Have you, have you seen or read any really bad takes? Uh, guys who just totally missed the mark on the book of Job. Anything come to mind? Um, that totally missed the mark?
1: No, I, I do think there's some some misconceptions in the part of some people. Mm-hmm. So, for example, um, Job two twelve is it after after his two rounds of suffering have uh, unfolded, um, his wife tells him to just curse God and die. He says, "Shall we not? Re- shall we receive good from God, and shall we not receive evil?" And I've heard that verse quoted in such a way that it's like the final word on the subject and that's all we need to know about suffering. Mm. And Job has the answer, so he must be great. Um, he's a wonderful model to follow. The The problem is that that can't fil- that be the filter for understanding of the whole book. Mm-hmm. When you get to chapter 38 and the Lord finally appears, what he says to Job is, "Who to Job now, not the friends, who is this that darkens counsel by words without knowledge? That's his question for Job. And we need to follow him on that journey and understand how suffering will affect a, p- a person mm-hmm. and how Job responded maybe well to it and didn't respond well to it. It's, it's a mixed response. He certainly didn't agree with the friends, which is a good thing. I think that's why the New Testament commends him and, and tells us to remember the endurance of Job. Mm-hmm. He wouldn't accept the wrong answer, even though culturally he was being pressured to do so. And there's a whole bunch of ways that we're culturally pressured to, um, to answer the God question wrong, um, you know, when we suffer, we okay. see that running rampant. Um, yep. So to, to, to say that it's like a, the old Testament version of just quoting Romans eight twenty eight 28 is Yeah. it's true, but it, it's unfeeling and it really doesn't grapple with the depth of trauma. So there's okay. that one. The other one is just one verse. Job says, he knows the way that I take when he has tried me, I shall come out as gold. It's a wonderful sentiment. We, we treat it as a quote that, that indicates you know that trials have a beneficial effect. Problem is, that's not really what Job means by it. He's talking about, I think, a literal legal trial where he can proclaim his innocence. Mm-hmm. He's saying, I'm gold right now. I am innocent of all these charges, and I'm willing to be fully examined and swear to that under oath, which is, of course, what he'll do. So those would be two particularly bad
0: takes. Well. That's a big difference. The second one <laughs> it is,
1: and I, and I hope the the podcast, if nothing else, have sensitized us to the fact that there's a whole lot of theological struggle mm-hmm. in his mind. And the answer that job is is given by the Lord is four chapters long. It's not you know a romans eight twenty eight yeah kind of answer,
0: okay so that is where we're going to pick up today with uh, the cross-examining of job God's message what God has to say to job and and some of his response and then some application for us what we can learn from that so as we get in there and we look at how God interacted with job we uh, what do you notice? Do you notice anything about God's methodology? Uh, are, are there any conclusions that we can draw for us based on what God tells Job? You know, how, do, how does God interact in yeah. this narrative? A couple of things. I think
1: God is definitely drawing attention to the errors implied by what Job has done. But he's doing it in a very specific way. There's a lot of what I would call saving of face. There's no direct rebuke of Job. There's simply a question. And questions get somebody to think about something and they imply beyond, without necessarily assigning blame. Yeah. So that's an important thing. And I think maybe that's something we should do in our own efforts to talk to people. Questions.
0: Yeah. And Um, I, I think it's interesting because that's. Uh, the opposite of how some of job's friends deal with yeah. him especially elihu in one of his correspondence with job mm-hmm. you mentioned how he was kind of kind of harsh yeah. and maybe to- told him the the hard mm-hmm. truths mm-hmm. which you know we t- talked about last time wasn't necessarily completely accurate but mm-hmm. he wasn't maybe as as gracious
1: yeah and that's you know that's something that in their culture that would have been perceived a little differently i suppose than in our culture but it still makes the point. God treats Job a little differently than maybe anybody had, even the person who has some positive aspects such Mm -hmm. as Elihu. Um, But there's a lot of, you know, face-saving here, rhetorical questions to get Job to think about it, which often are more effective than direct rebukes. I I still remember several conversations I had with kids, and here I'm at the point of almost arguing with teenagers (laughs) until I just asked a question and boy, the whole tenor of that thing changed because now they had to think about it. And I, it was a question about basically, how are you different from this biblical character? Um, and they didn't have a good answer hmm. and the, it, it dropped. I dropped it at that point because, well, yeah. And, uh, so we probably ought to do a lot more of that, okay. but it's hard to do. Um, And then God also presents just an overwhelming amount of evidence here. Really, when you think about it, four chapters would all boil down to one, perhaps two main points, all argued for in about 20 different ways. Mm. Basically, it's this. The God who is wise and powerful enough to create to begin with is wise and powerful enough to manage evil, until he vanquishes it, and to manage my life as well. Hmm. And those rhetorical questions that Job can't answer do make that case very well.
0: Okay, that's the hard truth to learn. Yeah, it's overwhelming amount of evidence
1: that's being presented around one idea.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I, I think maybe when we're working with people who are, struggling, uh, maybe even think, you know, when we're doing counseling, mm-hmm. there's some things we can learn uh, based off of that. You know, like you said, God doesn't just give Job one verse, you know, Romans mm-hmm. 8, and get over it, that's mm-hmm. it. You know, <laughs> he kind of walks them through the mm-hmm. process and takes them to a point, and I know even talking with Dr. Ellen in his biblical counseling, he does mm-hmm. a, a lot of homework, a lot of getting yeah, people yeah. into the Word, a lot of just taking time and walking through the process with him to help them Mm -hmm. see. That's almost in a sense what's happening here where God just gives him the evidence and walks him through Mm -hmm. and helps him come to the point where he, uh, you know, periodically over the the course of this conversation Mm -hmm. starts to see and change his mind uh, and start to see the, you know, the biblical truth. And that's what we're trying to do when we, when we're trying to help people.
1: And I think it's important to note here, that's what God does, even though God knows exactly what Job's problem is. Mm. He's fully aware of everything. Most counselors, they have to go slowly, at least in part, because they just don't, they need time to understand fully the situation themselves and all the dynamics of it. You probably have a general idea based maybe on your first interview, but even there I've talked to counselors who have said it was only in the course of, you know, Weeks or even months that what was really the core issue came out. The lee wasn't even really necessarily aware that this thing was an issue mm-hmm. um, until an, an off-the-cuff remark was made. Um, so we need to gather information too. But even though God doesn't, He still asks the questions and has led Job through the, the journey.
0: Yeah, that's uh, that's really interesting. So talk to us about the, the round of questions, the rounds of questions that God gives Job. Mm-hmm. And are there some key themes or ideas that keep mm-hmm. appearing in some of these?
1: Yeah, there really are. I mean, it's, it's pretty easy to outline. In chapter 38, you have some questions regarding the created order, you know, largely the physical creation. So, And God kind of moves through many of the things that are introduced in Genesis 1. So he asked Job, "Where were you when the foundations of the earth were laid? Um, who enclosed the sea with doors? You know, reference to separating out the, the dry land from the from the water. Um, what about the night? Have you ever commanded the morning that it might uh, that it might cause the wicked to be shaken out of its place? And then the ocean floor. Have you entered it or walked in the recesses of the deep? These are things that." job is aware of but they're so remote in his experience that he probably doesn't understand much about them we don't understand Mm -hmm. that much about them and it is interesting the the ones that god elaborates on the night is something you know we understand god causes day and night and that should be impressive as well but god also mentions that the the morning causes the wicked to be shaken out of his place. In a sense, daybreak is a way of limiting evil. Mm. People seldom, well, are much less likely to commit crimes when there's some light. Um, There's always stories in the news when some major city experiences a blackout. (laughs) What's gonna happen? Mm -hmm. As soon as there's darkness, chaos breaks loose, lawlessness. Um, the ocean floor is another one and you know, it's interesting. We can see pictures all the time. Now of the ocean floor, very interesting to see what's down there. You know, Job knew none of that. He had no idea how deep the ocean was. I don't know how deep a man could have, you know, dived, Mm -hmm. but certainly not anywhere near the bottom. So it was just, they had no clue. Right. Yep. Um, so everything is remote in Job's experience. And he's aware of it, but doesn't understand it well. Then in the second half of the chapter, he talks about the maintenance of the world. Where is the dwelling of dark and light? Have you entered the storehouses of the snow? Again, those are which God specifies as reserved for distress or the day of battle. Human history is often turned on the weather. Mm Mm-hmm. Um, You know, God sending some weather event at some particular time. One obvious example that's always compelling to me is the Nazi invasion of the Soviet Union, World War II. Unusually harsh winter early, uh, coupled with a whole bunch of Nazi strategic blunders. But God controlled evil in a certain way. Mm
0: -hmm. So there's Um, some common grace here.
1: Yeah, there really is. And just what happens that is just a part of the normal pattern of weather. But within that normal pattern, there's variations that are very much under the control of God. Talks about rain in the desert, um, <clears throat> the heavenly bodies. Who puts everything in the constellations in order? And Job doesn't have an answer for that, and I don't either. In fact, the more we learn, the more we see the wisdom of God. Um, I think it was I saw a video recently. Carl Sagan famously predict you know, said that there were two conditions necessary for life on as we know it Mm -hmm. well they've expanded that list to about 200 now okay and things you would never have thought of unless you were a scientist and have time to think for example this video mentioned jupiter why is jupiter there Hmm. other than to be an impressive well the video said a very light earth needs a very large planet to attract asteroids meteorites or earth would get pummeled by that kind of stuff stray debris Hmm. Well, and life would be impossible, as we know. It. All of these fine-tuning things that God did. I, I didn't even, I would, I'd never even thought about that, but God had thought about it all. Um, and so, again, everything here is something Job is aware of, but it's remote in his experience, and he hasn't really thought through how complex those things are and how God manages it all. The implications are obvious. Your life is a complex thing, too. Do you really think you're wise enough to manage it all? And you're certainly not wise enough, Job, to stand in judgment on me and how I'm managing it. Yeah. So um, that's the first part of it. And then we proceed from there to questions on the, the animal kingdom. Again, he there's a lot of animals that might have been chosen, but they're, they're things that are all kind of remote and outside the, the realm of human experience. God doesn't talk about things like cattle, goats, sheep, camels, things that would have been in Job's experience. Even though you know we there's a lot we don't know about them, mm-hmm. he think he talks about things like the mountain goat and the ostrich. Um, the mountain goat and, and particularly important here is the means of reproduction, which differs so much The mountain goat tend, or the Ibex, I think is what's being referred to tends to, well, what they do is they give their birth to your young and the young leave their parent, their mother very soon, almost right away. Um, which, you know, who made that, that baby Ibex, whatever you call it, baby Ibex, lamb, whatever, ram, um, able to survive on its own. Well, mm-hmm. God did that. Now, the ostrich is different. It talks about how the ostrich lays its eggs and and then abandons them. That's not technically true, at least based on some species today. We can never be sure of what species God was talking about. So it's always a little bit iffy to, to just point you know, at a, a modern animal and say, well, this is, be, must be what God was talking about. But one, um, it, it was interesting. I, I just I, I read a study, uh, uh, an article on the mating habits of ostriches. Um, the male digs out the ne- nest, and then he mates with three to five hens. Uh, the male is the one who incubates them at night. Mm-hmm. So uh, only the dominant female will incubate them during the day. Everybody else leaves. But then they all raise the chicks. It's just, it's a weird thing. Mm. And the, the ostrich is a weird bird anyway. <laughs> it, it's, it doesn't fit normal expectations of a bird. It's this large, flightless bird, but can outrun a horse.
0: Mm.
1: Why even make such a thing? I have no idea. Because, number one, it glorifies God and God is able to do it, and it fits its own little niche in those ecosystems where it lives. Um, Also mentioned are the wild ox, wild donkey, birds of prey, all of which wouldn't have been terribly well understood or controllable by man. Um, The wild donkey is just a wild donkey living in remote wilderness locations outside of Job's real experience. Um, The wild ox can't be domesticated by man. Apparently the species that's being talked about here is very strong. It would be great to use it as a plow animal, but its temperament, it's pretty ornery, Mm. dangerous. The implications of that for evil, you know, evil is bad. It's dangerous to human beings too. Can you or I really vanquish evil? No. Only God can really deal with this problem, and He must be trusted to deal deal with it in His own way and in His own timing. So that's the that's the um, really the argument in in chapters thirty eight and thirty nine from again both the creation itself and then the animals that inhabit some of the fringes of
0: it. Okay, so that's what we we think about of as round one mm-hmm. of God's interaction. And does Job have any response to uh, that, that first round? Yeah, he
1: does, and it's an interesting thing to look at. Um, whatever the issue is, let's keep in mind, it's probably not resolved yet because now God launches off into the next two chapters. Job, I think, here's the way I would take him. The Lord pauses, giving him a chance to respond. Job says he feels small, and he answers nothing. Hmm. That's... Let's not miss what's happening there. He's basically retracting his lawsuit. He's dropping the matter at that point. But I would say the issue is not fully resolved, and Job, in his own mind, is at what what somebody called an uneasy peace with God. He, he's kinda, I, I like him to this. The person who has lost an argument but doesn't really want to admit it. None <laughs> of us like to admit that we're wrong, and, and none of us like to... You know, It's an offensive thing to human pride. But so sometimes if we've lost an argument, we'll respond. We won't really embrace the truth. We won't verbally affirm that the other person was correct. We'll just drop the matter and change the subject Mm -hmm. because we realize we've been beaten, but we don't want to press the matter any further. And that's really not what we want to see out of Job. It's not what any of us want to see. It's far less than the the response we're going to see in chapter forty-two, which is really high praise of God that we'll get to in a, in a second. So, and furthermore, the issue really is not over. God has pointed to a bunch of um, a bunch of things and animals that Job is not very aware of mm-hmm. to emphasize his lack of knowledge, and Job might still, um, as Eric Ortland noted conclude that Job is ignorant of God, but God still has some dark and sinister plan Hmm. for creation that Job is just unaware of. So, and that's not the case. God has no dark and sinister plan for creation. It's a good plan. And that's where behemoth and Leviathan are going to make that um, case.
0: Okay. So let's go into that round two Hmm. of God's... uh, God's uh, response to Job.
1: Mm-hmm. Well, here we're going to get much more into the realm of, of arguing for why God's governance of the world as it now exists is good and right and perfect. Um, and the questions that God begins with in chapter 40 are something we should just look at for a second and understand what God is saying here. Um, Dress for action like a man. We're in verse 7 here. And dress for action like a man. I will question you, and you make it known to me. Will you even put me in the wrong? Will you condemn me that you may be in the right? Again, this is words to Job. So whatever Job has done is putting God in the wrong, which trauma suffers are tempted to do. They just are. And it's understandable why, but it is very wrong to do so because God is perfect and always good, even though he allows evil. So have you an arm like God? Can you thunder with a voice like his? Adorn yourself with majesty and dignity. Clothe yourself with glory and splendor. Pour out the overflowings of your anger on, look on everyone who is proud and abase him. So God is inviting Job, okay, go ahead, manage the world. (laughs) Deal with evil correctly. Um, If you can do that, verse 14, God says, then I will also acknowledge to you that your own right hand can save you. I would even praise you if you could do that. But we soon find, If we're honest with ourselves, we're going to have to admit, I just don't have the ability to establish righteousness and justice. Um, It is interesting how people who are very critical during running for office or, or even occupying some position, who are critical of their predecessor, Yep. Once they're in that position, all of a sudden their predecessor seems a little wiser. (laughs) It's like the old um, the old saying. I really thought I I really didn't think my dad was wise until I I got to be older, Mm -hmm. and I was a father and I understood. And um, it is true. Anything that a human government can do is limited. Do I really have the ability to judge righteously and justly? To know fully what people have done, and and even if they're guilty. No, the human system that we have is very imperfect. It should restrain evil on some level, but it is there's no way to make it any better than it is, really. Um, injustices will is, exist. So you know, can you do any better? And I think we need to understand here. Yeah, I, that makes sense. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. It's
0: kind of like you know, not that God would, would throw a fit, but someone who yeah. gets upset at someone and says, "Well, if you think you can do a better job, then why don't you give it a try?" Yeah. It's I mean, it's almost, almost to... as if God is saying, "Well, we you yeah.
1: think you can do it? Go and, ahead." And that's really very much. These are all questions. I should think through these questions and think through my answer. And I should say after each verse, oh, "I don't know." That's a good question. Or wow, I can't do that. It's easy to think we know a lot until we're put on the spot to ask what we really know.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: And um, again, I think these beasts are are impressive in their own right. I mean, and we have had this experience. We tend to be impressed by the big and ferocious animals when we go to the zoo. Correct? <laughs> the Who cares? Lions. You know, we always go to the little. Um, you know little am- amphibian section where they have all the frogs and they, you know, nifty colors and weird shapes. And that's interesting, but what do you really want to see?
0: Is it lions and the, the lions gorillas and the, tiger, and the big <laughs> stuff,
1: the dangerous stuff. And so that's what God is doing here. And I think we do need to have a little discussion here about something. Cause you, you won't have to read very far before you will get a lot of disagreement on behemoth and Leviathan on two levels. First of all, what exactly are they? But even before we get to that, we really have to then ask the question, are these real beasts or are they mythic beasts? Mm. Things that God is just using to portray his His control of evil. And here's my take on this, Okay, the short version of it for the podcast. <laughs> I think you have – I would say they are real beasts. However – you, if you just leave it on that level, you'll really miss the significance of what's going on. Pagan thinking always associates beasts with cosmic forces, whether those cosmic forces are good or evil, based on what's known as continuity thinking. Okay, which is a whole another discussion for another, um, for a whole another another day. Now, and Scripture uses some of this same. Imagery. Now, when it does it, it's not lending any credence to pagan notions of the universe. Um, but it's it's it nor, neither does it argue against pagan conceptions of the universe based on what we would do. Logic, Greek thinking, you know, the logical inconsistencies, the impossibility of such things. Instead, what God does is it demonstrates how what the pagan mind thinks is powerful is actually powerless before God. So a good example of this is um, the plagues in Egypt. Now, we view these as impressive feats in and of themselves simply because you know they were acts of God that could not be repeated, things that humans can't do. But again, keep in their minds. In Egypt, all the gods are associated with some realm of nature.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: For example, the cow god Hathor is is the god, well, the goddess of a number of things, fertility, love, music, dancing, beauty, pleasure, etc, I guess, just about everything. <laughs> um the there's also the god Heket, probably mispronouncing that. So, if there's any Egyptologists, I'll send you this. My, my apologies. That's the goddess of fertility. It's often portrayed as a frog. Now, I think both of these things in nature have certain functions. Let's take the frog. Frogs lay a lot of eggs. Depends on the species, another one of those species you know, differentiation things. Some of them just lay a few eggs. One species I read of lays maybe 10, and they're implanted by the the father in the mother's back. Why you do that, I don't know. Other species lay thousands of them. Many of them are destined to be used just for food for other creatures. Um, But if if you're an Egyptian, I'm guessing the the, the species of frogs that they were looking at, I mean, you would have seen this all the time. and They lay eggs, and there's thousands of them. So you associate this with particular fertility and um, the, so that's what you did. Now, I I do think that if you think about pagan conceptions of these animals, let's take Hathor and Heket, the cow and the frog. In Egyptian art, sometimes it's portrayed simply as a cow or a frog. But often it's this stylized kind of version Mm -hmm. where you've got, on the one hand, a human head, a human body with a frog or a cow head on top of it. You won't find that anywhere in nature, it doesn't exist. But in continuity thinking, that does exist. Now, having said that, I would say it might be in the description of of these animals, there'd be some incorporation of some of those descriptive elements. Although when you read through everything, it looks just like they're describing everything works. It doesn't, there's no mixing of features between humans and and these animals. Uh, but so even though they're definite animals, I would still say there's some sort of um, mythic concept there. And and they're thinking these kind of animals are hostile to humans. The behemoth and the leviathan. Very hostile. You wouldn't want to come near it. Which is probably meaning that in the thinking that Job was familiar with, these were associated with evil forces. And Yet if God creates them and controls them, what does that suggest about his creation and control of evil forces? Mm. The same. And this is is a very biblical concept that we probably miss. I'll I'll give you you one final quotation here from Jethro in Genesis 18 when Moses told him about the plagues he said now I know that the Lord is more powerful than what all realms of nature no than the gods of Egypt he is referencing very briefly that theology and of course we know when Israel um, set up false worship on Mount Sinai it was a it was a golden what
0: a calf Calf.
1: They'd pick that up in Egypt as something mm. representing God. They were just trying to assign it as a new identity to, to the Lord. So, um, <clears throat> so that's the mythic aspect.
0: Of okay. It. Yeah.
1: As far as the specifics of the animals uh, themselves, um, Behemoth is it, the description is much shorter, but it, it one, but it's a it's a bad animal. You know, it's a animal you don't want to mess with, whether we talk about it as, as if it's a hippo or a dinosaur or maybe something else we don't even know about. Uh, perhaps a word about that, because I know that might, one might be a vacation. <laughs> a, this, this is a, there's a translation issue there. In most versions, it talks about um, you know, stiffening its tail like a cedar and talking about the strength in its belly. Mm-hmm. Um, that might suggest it's, it's very strong in its hips. It has a strong stance you're not going to move it um, at all. Um, it may also be euphemistic way of referring to genitalia, in which case it would talk about the prolific reproduction of a fierce creature that you can't control Job. Um, so either either one of those is possible. I wouldn't make, make a big issue of it. I, I, or it could either be some other creature unbeknownst to us. Mm -hmm. Um, we often run into issues of flora and fauna identification. You got to keep in mind species differentiation does happen. So whatever God is pointing to might not exist in our experience anymore, even though it exists in you know in a related animal. So um, I, I would say that you know a lot of in print, a lot of people dis- are dismissive of the dinosaur hypothesis. Um, the, the, the most l- in a way that doesn't fairly deal with the evidence. I think that the, the most likely reasons, the motivations, I don't know, but they seem to me to be either a commitment to read Job as some sort of fiction that's just borrowing mythic concepts and saying these, this is just total myth, the animals don't exist, there's nothing real, or uh, a commitment to a, a, a bias against any form of young earth creationism. It's become and regardless of whether you think that's you know a 6 year or a 10,000 year or whatever time frame um that that's that's spoken of negatively from really both conservative and liberal sides of 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 thinking which is sad to see mm. that that is a legitimate option that's out there honestly it's probably the one i would i would commit myself to um you know at least include it as an option out there this Everything else is real in Job's experience. Mm. I I don't think it does and, and fits very well into the idea that, yeah, there is some sort of mythic conception here. Leviathan, it's probably the longest description of anything in the Bible. You think about it, a whole chapter describing that animal in a fierce way. It's nothing that I think we can point to today, but that doesn't mean that it didn't exist back then. And I think it is interesting how if these animals are some sort of now extinct animals, that in and of itself, to me, would suggest that God did limit animal habitats because of their hostility to humanity. Uh, I mean, he's kind of done that anyway, hasn't he?
0: Mm
1: -hmm. Um, In many respects. There are predators that are dangerous to human life that I don't have to deal with in North America. Um, Of course, there are some that are dangerous to human life. The unescapable acute conclusion is, okay, so these things exist. Animal forces are hostile toward us, but God has limited them just like he's limited evil. He's managing it for right now. That doesn't mean he he doesn't take it seriously. He takes it very seriously. But it's, in the end, under his complete control used for his purposes only. And I think that's why Behemoth and Leviathan are are mentioned there.
0: Okay. All right. After the second round of uh, of God's uh, conversing with Job, we see Job making a confession of sorts. Uh, do you want to talk to us about that and what we, what we can learn from that? Should we follow his model and, and how he responds?
1: Yes, I think it's probably a pretty good model. And this is where I would want to get any anybody who's suffered severe trauma, I'd want to get them to this point where not only are they willing to live with what happened, they're praising God and going out of their way to do so in spite of their suffering. That's really the only adequate response for any sufferer. I know that's going to be hard to do, but Job models that quite well. Um, he says, of course, in verse... And this is something people might be kind of familiar with. I know that you can do all things. No purpose of yours can be thwarted. So nothing... you know, God, you could even allow evil to exist for your own purposes and manage it. And all I can say is praise God for his ability to take evil and use it for good. Then he asked rhetorically about himself. Who is this who hides counsel without knowledge? Kind of repeating god's question there therefore i've uttered what i did not understand things too wonderful for me for which i did not know we might say in our vernacular i had no idea what i was talking about god is so wise and so powerful i better leave this to him to manage i doubtless would mess it up horribly um And and God's many acts, there's too many of them to even talk about. The psalmists talk about this occasionally as well. Um how how numerous the wonderful acts of God are. And so I had heard you by the hearing of the ear. So I, I knew some things about you, but now I really understand you a lot better than I used to. And therefore I, I verse six is a a change of mindset, yeah, I repent, I take back what I said, I was wrong, God's worthy of praise, he's right. And every, every person needs to get to that point where we recognize whatever God is allowing, I may not understand it, it may be hard. Is it right? Yes, it is. And who am I to say that if he hadn't allowed this bad thing, the results would be any better? They'd probably be worse. Again, thinking in a simple illustration, Paul's thorn in the flesh. He could see why that had happened. Often we have trouble doing that, and and the the pain is so bad. And, of course, often we compound the problem by our sin and blame god for that too and it all gets just lumped in god so i think what you have to do is you have to a counselor can help you sort through that i think and say you know this this is you're not responsible for this this didn't ha- this happened to you you had nothing to do with it but look, hey at this point you've responded wrongly and and you need to acknowledge that repent and you need to start thinking differently about the lord until you do the issue is really not resolved that's why we have the whole two of the round of questions. Mm-hmm. That's, that's a process you can't get there by quoting mm-hmm. either Job 2.10 or Romans 8.28. And that's really why biblical counseling is so critical in many respects. You'll never deal with the specifics of any one particular situation from the pulpit. You'll say a lot that's helpful, at least mm-hmm. you should. And In fact, I think it's a good reason to study counseling. Those who have, even if they don't do much counseling, they say all of a sudden scripture comes alive. Helps their preaching. You'll connect with better people, better with people. But um, <clears throat> so, yeah, that's where we're that's what we're shooting for.
0: Okay. So, can we learn anything about the reason for suffering from the Book of Job?
1: Yeah, I think we can, and and it's interesting. Um, in well, in, in verse seven, I think we learn something about. Bad for bad counselors. Um, after Job, after the Lord had spoken these words to Job, the Lord said to Eliphaz, the Temanite, my anger burns against you and against your two friends, for you have not spoken uh, of me what is right, as my servant Job has. I think that's an important key. God doesn't say this about Job until what? Until he's, He's repented in dust and ashes. Then God can say it. Back in chapter 38 and chapter 40, we've got questions for Job. You're still not quite getting it. You, you were right up to a point. But at that point, you stopped being right and you were wrong. And, of course, these um, God did actually do for Job exactly what he wanted. Job wanted to be exonerated. Is Job exonerated here? He's commended by mm-hmm. God. God calls Job my servant and says he's spoken right about me. And also, Job is the one who's going to intercede for them. He says, bring seven bulls and seven rams. That's a lot of an offering. That's a big offering, probably reflective of the, the seriousness of their sin in misrepresenting God um, and giving the wrong solution. So a solemn warning to be careful. <laughs> in not just counseling, but in preaching, and in anything we try to say to people, even informally, about God, lest we also be guilty of foolishness. And Job is the one who will pray for them and perform intercessory ministry. So if we've given bad counsel, we better own up to it and do whatever we can to make amends. Um, there was nothing they needed to do here other than bring the sacrifices. That would that would vary. Um and again, they're called fools. Hmm. Wow, that's—they seem so wise. They certainly thought themselves that way. So there's there's a warning here. And but once and again, keep in mind, Job had could could minister now, but not until he had his own house in order first. Hmm. And so God obviously dealt with Job first, so he could then honor and exalt Job, not not by. Restoring him to his position, which you ultimately would do that as well, but by right here and now, making Job the one who said something right about me, mm. wow! Yeah. So Job did get what he wanted, just not quite in the way he expected to get it. Mm-hmm. Um. So.
0: So you have uh, six six reasons for suffering yeah. in some of your notes. Can you talk through yeah, some sure. of those? Yeah, sure.
1: And I, I think at the end, you know, we would probably and and. This is actually not original with me. It's you know some ethicists and apologists have come up with this because you know we started by asking the the evil question. Mm-hmm. It's a trial. It's it's a crisis of faith for people when evil exists in the world. And you know what does this say about God? And most Christians, I think today would would correctly say, well, sometimes suffering really is for nothing other than you've you're getting what you deserve. Mm-hmm. Um, sometimes it's also Christians would say it, it educative. You know, we're going to learn something. We're going to be able, be able to, to minister out of it. Okay. But three, there are four other reasons which are very good that we probably don't consider much. One of them is the communion aspect. When I suffer, it greatly strengthens my relationship with God. As long as I'm willing to keep looking to him, I will look to his word, and the pages of the Bible will probably come alive to me in a way that I, they wouldn't have until I had the context of reading them as a sufferer. Um, you, you usually can't understand somebody's experience until that you, you can understand something was bad, but you really can't understand how bad it was until you've been there yourself. And so I've had many people talk to me that, you know, yeah, I'd read Psalms, it was all very interesting. And, and, and then this happened to me. And I met with God in that experience and learned of him. And it was worth it on that basis alone And it would be worth it for me to lose everything if, in its place, I had a greater knowledge of who God is. That's really the only thing that brings any human satisfaction. It's really the only thing we were created for. And it's true. God gives us other things to enjoy as well. That's part of what he is, the giver of all good things. Nonetheless, I need to know him and understand him better and put those things in their proper perspective as gracious gifts from him that, that are much less valuable than knowing the giver who gave them. Hmm. Um, so the communion aspect. There's the eschatological aspect of it. Um, I think we do sometimes want this earth to be a little bit of heaven. It isn't. It's only the new heaven and the new earth that will balance all this out vanquish evil, and the world will be like it is. If for no other reason just to keep us from living wrongly for the temporal, I think it's wise that God allows suffering. This world is broken due to human sin. It's not fixable apart from the work of Christ, the, the divine work of the Godhead um, in the God-man Jesus Christ. Um Two other reasons, determinism, something, some of it's um, inescapable. I, I think everything has, probably has a reason, but we'll never figure it out. So some things we'll just have to f- chalk up to, well, God knows, and I'll never figure it out. But the, 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 one, the other one I like is, is the, really the mystery aspect um, that some of us will never understand. And I think I kind of mentioned this earlier, but I've thought through this some. Um, why would God create at all? I mean, I. Whenever I'm making a decision, I do some sort of risk reward analysis, and honestly, based on the risks or rewards of making a decision, um, knowing everything that was going to happen, all the evil, all the suffering, I probably wouldn't have decided to create. I would say <laughs> it just isn't worth it. As soon as I say that, it is a heretical thought because it puts me as a judge over what God should or should not have done. Mm-hmm. Well, I can't judge him. I, I can't begin to understand him. So I'm just going to have to trust that the only one who perfectly knows right and wrong did not violate his perfect and righteous character by creating this version of the world as we now know it. Um, but I still have, I still find it hard to understand why God would do such a thing. Coming back to the yeah, but all the suffering. Um, well, God knows. At the end of it all, I should say, wow, God is truly worthy of my worship. Just like Job and the friends, I think we want God to be something we can reduce to human understanding and fully fathom. It just can't be done. For me to really understand God, I'd have to be God. Mm -hmm. So we're just going to have to accept there's some things about him I don't think I'll ever understand because I'm not him. Um. That's why he's worthy of our worship. And I think Job's words are very worshipful in, in nature. And I know just really reading through and thinking about and studying and grappling those last four chapters should be one of the most worshipful experiences we have. It emphasizes the vast chasm between God's abilities and mine.
0: So one, uh, one final question uh, before we go. Uh, do you have any interpretive principles or, or suggestions for those who are studying the book of Job? Maybe you have a pastor who's listening and they, yeah. they want to preach through Job mm-hmm. or a Sunday school or Bible teacher and they're just struggling with ha- how to even approach it. Is Job the type of book where you would go verse by verse? Is it better taken in larger chunks? Mm-hmm. Uh, how would you, how would you break it up? Yeah. Or do you have any, any advice for that?
1: Well, I would say rather shame. Seamlessly. We do teach a class here, so take the class. But no, in all seriousness, it, to me it was it's helpful to think of this as a story. It's got a narrative frame. Mm-hmm. Chapters 1 and 2 and, and 48 are very narrative, and you've got characters. But they're speaking in poetry um, <clears throat> as, you know, so you have to understand a little bit about how poetry works. So we're getting into... Dealing with metaphor, poetic parallelism. So, it, if you know some, you, you really have to study that. And it's really when I st- I made that connection and, and said, wait a second, I, I know how poetry works. So filter it through that, that it started making sense. Um, I, I have done this as a three-hour class, a two-hour class. Three-hour class would be like forty-five sessions. Um, I, I've shrunk it shrunk it down to a a twelve-week series. In a church context, I've I've put it in um, <clears throat> now in four podcast episodes. <laughs> I'm sure glad I didn't try the four podcast episodes first. If I hadn't <laughs> known what to do with it, I would I would have been lost. But I would say, I you know you you want to do within blocks to be mm-hmm. sure, and and the middle rounds of dialogue are the things that I find. You know, the second round in particular is the easiest thing I find when I moved the class from three hours to two hours to kind of summarize very quickly, because the debate bogs down, it does what it does. And there are things that are worth looking at there. But um, honestly, if I had to preach through it now, I, I could easily take a whole year. I'm not sure that I could keep everyone's attention for a whole year, but so for the average pastor, it's probably better to, you know, make it a shorter series. So, yeah, so there are some, so if to, you had again, to preach through again, it, as I said,
0: the class is open. If, if you were the pastor of a church and you were planning your sermon series and you could, dedicate as much or as little to the book of Job, uh, what do you think would be an ideal you know, you know, number? What, oh. Are we talking in the five or six sermon series, in the 12 to 14 sermon series, in the 20 sermon series? I mean, I'm sure you could do 20, but yeah, how do you think you would break it up?
1: I don't know. You know, I now that I've done the podcast episodes, that gives everybody a nice overview mm-hmm. all at once, in in a way that you can get your mind around the whole book. That's hard to do even in a 12-week series, although it would be easier than certainly a, a 15-week series or mm-hmm. a 30-week series or whatever. So I, know, I, I just have a lifelong love affair with the book <laughs> of Job, so it would be hard for me to limit myself, but I'm, I know there are other things you have to discuss in Scripture. And I suppose the highlights of what's going on in Job... Um, In a church context, I would probably devote at least 12 messages to it. Okay. Um, But I I could go longer or shorter now.
0: Okay. All right. Well, thanks for answering that question, and thank you for your time and talking with us over the the past few weeks. Okay.
1: Thank you again for having me. Really have enjoyed it.
0: Next time on the Central Seminary Podcast. perhaps over-theologize the idea of covenant. Talk to us about some of the terminology used in covenant language. That's a lot of information. I hope you can process all of that. Two essential elements of a covenant, they define relationship and they define obligation. There are many, many, many who, who talk or think about covenants in terms of conditional covenant. Do we see this in some of the culture around Israel? All covenants by their very nature have conditions. Biblical covenants and understanding covenants. There are conditions. Let's not call it unconditional. Let's call it unilateral. Not the most accurate way to describe covenant. We actually spend most of the time on it in my dispensationalism class. How are covenants often misunderstood? Look for our next episode on the Central Seminary Podcast. Thanks for listening to the Central Seminary Podcast. Our mission at Central Seminary is to assist New Testament churches in equipping spiritual leaders for Christ-exalting biblical ministry. Since its founding in 1956, Central Seminary has sought to provide serious students of God's Word with robust theological education as they prepare for ministry. We have many graduates around the world who are serving in countless ways to spread the gospel and proclaim the name of Jesus Christ. Find out more at our website, CentralSeminary.edu.